0: And he was sketching this on a napkin in the coffee in the coffee shop where we were, and uh, and I was really enthused by the idea. And Dirk and I were going across the street to meet Patrick in the office and told him as well. And he got excited too. So we at that point in time we thought, okay, we should really do this very unusual blend.
1: Welcome to this episode of the Academy of Management Review Origin Series. My name is Rich McAdock. I am a professor of management at Purdue University's Kranich School of Management and also an associate editor of AMR. And uh, in today's episode, I'll be interviewing two of the authors of a forthcoming AMR article called A Bait and Switch Model of Corporate Social Responsibility by Patrick Hack, uh, Dirk Martignoni, and Dennis uh, Schoenborn. Um, and uh, De- Dennis and Patrick are with me here today. First of all, let me ask uh, uh, for uh, one of you to just give a brief summary of, uh, of what the article is about. What's the, you know, kind of uh, one or two minute elevator pitch for this article?
2: So first of all, thanks for having us, Rich. It's an honor to be in your channel. Uh, So in terms of elevator pitch, well, I guess the key question of the paper is, what is the best way to facilitate substantive adoption of CSR? So how can we make sure that CSR is implemented in the core activities and processes of an organization so that it becomes uh, an enduring and taken for granted element of that organization? And... uh, To answer this question there are at least two main uh, perspectives so one is saying well in order to ensure that practices are implemented we need to have transparency Mm -hmm. in industry right so people actually need to be able to observe what is going on within the organization Uh, and, and in that way we can ensure that a practice is not only Adopted superficially or ceremonially, but actually is entrenched within the organization. And uh, important uh, notions here are, of course, you need to be strict. Uh, there should be some accountability. There's, there should be monitoring. Uh, there should be sanctioning in, tr- uh, in, in, in cases where the organization is not complying. Right? Uh, even punishment. Um, that that's we would say this is actually um, the dominant perspective right like the
1: transparency perspective
2: yeah we we call it transparentist perspective right Um, uh, just to create a new term Um, (laughs) there's also um, a literature on the transparency imperative right this is this notion that uh, that transparency is beneficial uh, for uh, promoting CSR and this is very much taken for granted Uh, it's rarely challenged in the CSR literature. However, uh, there's a second perspective uh, saying, wait a minute, Um, it might be actually helpful if, if you're interested to promote CSR to have opacity, a lack of transparency, right? Where it's not clearly visible to external audiences what is going on within the organization. And the reasoning is here Uh, informed by literatures on social learning and sense-making. And a basic argument is, well, uh, we must not enforce managers or organizations to do something what they don't understand. So it might be helpful uh, to to have a lack of transparency because it may foster learning, uh, experimentation, uh, creativity, and so on. Whereas transparency and monitoring might actually shut down innovation. Right. So we have those two literatures, uh, the transparentist and the opacitist uh, perspective. And we show uh, in the paper, well, basically both, perspective, uh, both perspectives are valid, even though they come to very different conclusions. They are valid if we apply a dynamic perspective where uh, we would assume that uh, transparency over time can change into opacity and vice versa. So here we, we have the assumption that uh, evaluation regimes, so the degree to which uh, the degree of implementation is uh, visible to external observers can change over time. And uh, we do this with the help of a former model. We come up with four ideal types of uh, process sequences, uh, enduring forms of transparency and opacity, and transitory uh, forms of opacity and transparency. Transitory opacity basically meaning opacity followed by transparency, Mm -hmm. transitory transparency meaning transparency followed by opacity. And with the help of the model, we show, um, well, all four uh, process sequences can be optimal in terms of maximizing the number of substantive adoption. It, It just matters when they are optimal, so there are certain boundary conditions for which a given sequence is optimal. And interestingly, we find that for conditions that are quite realistic and relevant to the context of CSR, the uh, process sequence of transitory opacity can be optimal, namely for the the conditions where abandonment of uh, practice when it is substantively adopted is uh, quite difficult, and for the condition where um, immediate substantive adoption is also very difficult. And we we argue in the paper, well, this is very much the case in the context of CSR. It's very difficult to move right away to a deep implementation. And it's also very difficult to move uh, away from a once substantively adopted practice because otherwise you you would be penalized uh, um, publicly and would pose a threat to your legitimacy.
1: That makes sense. So uh, first of all, let me just say, I, I, I enjoyed reading the paper and the part about the opacity perspective reminded me of two pieces from the literature uh, from long ago. One is Alfie Kahn's uh, HBR article, Why Incentive Systems Cannot Work. Um, so, you know, that, that kind of seemed to have a similar flavor, uh, the opacity argument to what, what Kahn was arguing. And also similarly, especially with regard to your point about stifling innovation, um, since innovation is less measurable, uh, reminded me of the the work of Holmstrom and and Milgram in their 1991 Journal of Law Economics and Organization article uh, called um, Multitask Principal Agent Analyses. Um, So I think think you've kind of captured part of their argument as well in in representing the, the opacity perspective. Um, so, cause they, they argue that in some sense, incentive, both of them, you know, a and and, Holmster and Milgram in for their own reasons, different reasons argue that incentives can be too strong in some way. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, 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 and, I guess that's, that's similar to the arguing that, uh, that transparency can be, you can be too transparent in some sense. Um, so I, that just was something that occurred to me as I was reading the paper. Um, let me just follow up a little bit about uh, about the logic underlying the paper because you know I'm I'm kind of I'm a formal modeler myself so I I kind of tend to gravitate to these things and uh, and want to dig in perhaps perhaps more than my audience will want me to but I'll, I'll do it anyway. Um, so a couple of questions I had. Um, so first of all, you've got this very provocative title, a bait and switch model of corporate social responsibility, right? So bait and switch is uh, you know a term that's used in sales uh, where a salesperson uh, closes a deal uh, in a deceptive way uh, by uh, promising one thing uh, and then getting the uh, behaving in a way that increases the buyers commitment to doing the transaction and then actually delivering something different than was promised so there's a there's a there's an unethical flavor to the, to the, the term bait and switch, right? It's, it's deceptive. Um, And so, so it gives your, it gives your title a bit of a provocative uh, flavor to it. Um, So one question I had here was um, who, who exactly is doing the baiting and the switching in your logic? Who, so obviously, obviously the, the firm itself is kind of the, the, the buyer in the bait-and-switch uh, scenario, but who's the salesperson who's doing the bait-and-switch?
0: Yes, maybe I can say a few words about this. Uh, we are aware that the, usually the notion of bait-and-switch uh, has quite a negative connotation, but we actually mean it uh, uh, rather positively here in this context. Since we are talking here about practice that is in principle desirable, of course, that firms move towards the direction of adopting CSR practices substantively. So uh, we believe the the implications of the paper are partly not so much only for the firm itself, but also for those uh, who try to uh, nudge organizations or firms to move towards CSR adoption, for example, for NGOs who try to push the CSR, CSR agenda or for regulators. So, but it would be the advice for them to grant the firms some leeway in the beginning of a CSR adoption process, and to, mm-hmm. in that sense, it says, uh, lower the bar to enter these kind of practices mm-hmm. through a regime of opacity where the firms can experiment, learn, uh, uh, innovate, as Patrick just described, and then over time, at some point, switch the demands towards uh, a stronger push towards transparency, transparency because with the yeah. switch, uh, um, with, uh, later in this process, and switch towards an increased demands for transparency, then... Um, would um, create a situation where some of the ceremonial adopters, over time, um, right. switched also wow. towards substantive adoption. So in that sense, kind of the bait and switch mechanism, as you might know it in marketing, but in a very different meaning here in the CSR context. I don't right.
1: know, Patrick, so if you want to add to it. Your, your argument there, what you're saying, in effect, is the, the ends justify the means. In some sense, we can use uh, deceptive ends to 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 do this because the the i sorry, deceptive means to accomplish this because it's uh, the the end is a good end in some sense. Yeah, I'm,
2: Patrick, I'm not, yeah, yeah. Patrick, I'm,
1: I'm Patrick. not sure. Patrick, you
2: disagree? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not sure deception is involved here, um, yes. because in a sense, the salesperson uh, could be uh, different people, right? I mean, uh, we we talk in the paper about uh, exogenous versus endogenous switches. Yes, Uh, I noticed that. One sales person could be the regulator, right? Uh, If if the regulator decides, okay, we see now a critical mass of ceremonial adopters, we've been tolerating this behavior, but now we really want to ensure that the ceremonial adopters implement the practices. So now I do, uh, I tighten up the regulation, right? And uh, so in a sense... um, this, this will actually uh, be the, the switch part here uh, another salesperson could be of course and Dennis mentioned it the, the NGOs, right and if right. you're interested in, in promoting CSR it, it it doesn't it doesn't make sense actually to have a very strict standard or a very strict uh, regime uh, in the beginning because then you may have only a few, uh, organizations being able to meet the standards of that uh, uh, very strict regime and the impact in terms of uh, uh, promoting CSR would be, would be very small. So even as an NGO, um, you, you need to keep an eye on uh, the temporal process, right? Also um, outcomes in the future. And as an NGO, you may have an interest actually to tolerate in the beginning some ceremonial behavior, some symbolic behavior, because no, you may be able then to attract a huge number of organizations who are still experimenting, but nevertheless, after uh, the tightening and uh, the hardening of, of requirements, they, some of them at least may uh, then change from ceremonial to substantive adoption, which increases your net impact in terms of uh, uh, promoting CSR. So at least two salespersons here involved, the regulators and the NGOs, and the third type of salesperson is actually the uh, organizations already uh, substantively adopting a practice in the beginning, right, because we have a a few true believers who are willing and able to meet strict standards right in the beginning, but what happens for them under opacity, external observers do, do not see the differences, right? And they tend to overgeneralize from a few bad apples to the general population. And this of course uh, is a problem for the true believers for the substantive adopters. And they have an incentive to enforce over time uh, a stricter regime towards transparency. So at least three salespersons here, regulators,
1: NGOs and uh, the true believers. Yes, and there's actually I think a second story you could tell about the competitors. Uh, the, beyond just a kind of a true believer story. If, I'm, if I play, put on maybe a little bit of a cynical hat, right? I could, I could see where it may not be that I'm a true believer, but I at least have um, some advantage in being able to deliver CSR more effectively or less expensively than my competitors do. And so I adopt it early. Uh, and then I translate that into a competitive advantage Uh, by luring my competitors into induce them first into into adopting ceremonially and then later cut the branch off by uh, by demanding greater transparency so it may be a form of maybe a way that 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 a company can actually gain a competitive advantage even if they're not a true believer in some sense so that's that's another possible story one could tell so um, I I did want to uh, uh, follow up a little bit about the um, the assumptions underlying the model. So again, there's there's um, whoever the salesperson is. If I, um, you know, there's a saying: a uh, for, forewarned is forearmed, right? So if I know in advance what's coming, I can be better prepared for it and and protected against it, right? Um, so if if I know that somebody is going to bait and switch me, that may uh, enable me to, you know, to prepare for it in advance and maybe avoid the bait and switch, right? So, it, it, but that that assumes a certain level of rationality. Um, and uh, as far, so you, the kind of mathematical model that you use in this paper does not assume that kind of rationality. Is that correct? Where where my adoption behavior today is taking into account, um, you know, what I think may happen tomorrow in terms of transitions?
2: It's, it's not in the model. Uh, and uh, you raise a fascinating point here. And I think indeed we see companies who are who are quite advanced uh, in, in terms of CSR, who do not communicate actively about their CSR commitments because they are afraid being pulled into something that they cannot control eventually, Um, which which is some sort of reversed decoupling, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Meaning, well, actually a a company is already doing pretty okay in terms of implementation, but nevertheless, the company is very careful in, in communicating about it, which is quite the opposite of the traditional concept of decoupling. Coming back to your question, it's not in the model. Uh, it's as as you know, it's a very pes- uh, pesimonious model. We right. try to make uh, uh, just just a few assumptions. Uh, later on in the robustness checks, of course, we we uh, add uh, and vary and uh, um, um, play around a little bit with the assumptions. But you're right. We we cannot. I, I think we cannot, and we we didn't want to. Uh, um, reflect uh, the full complexity of the
1: world out there. Sure, no, of course, of course. So one has to draw boundaries somewhere and and uh, and keep things parsimonious. So, but let me just ask you to maybe speculate on what might be an extension of this paper if you were to allow uh, firms' adoption behaviors to be uh, done in a more rational, forward-looking, proactive, prospective way, rather than just in a reactive way. Um, how do you think the results might differ in, in an extension like that? Yes, now uh, it's a bit
0: tricky for us also to answer because our simulation crack in the team, Dirk Martin-Uni is not around. Ah, some okay. Of discussions, uh, yeah. Some of our discussions with him are centered around uh, future research to look into kind of agent-based modeling where we would be able to distinguish also between different attributes that the agents have. So far, we are t- treating them with one bold brush, uh, right. the, the agents in model by and large. Um, so uh, the Markov model is uh, excels in its simplicity, but right. uh, it doesn't really take into account the historicity of, of the agents, so to speak, and also not different attributes, for example, Big market players, small market players, or different uh, types uh, of commitment here. So that could be an uh, option for the future. But we didn't take into account your ideas so far uh, in our discussion okay. in the author team. Well, I look
1: forward to future yeah. refinements of this model as as it gets extended in the future. Yeah, it'd be great. Um, Thanks, so Simon. okay, so I've, I've I've played around enough with the with the model itself. Let me ask you about the the story behind the paper. So um, tell us a little bit about. Um, uh, uh, you know, how did this project get started in the first place? Where did you get the idea for it?
0: Yeah, I think it's an interesting backstory, maybe also interesting for, for junior scholars to hear, because it t- dates back quite a long time ago, I think now nine years, roughly, um, because at the time Patrick and I were already doing research in that, exactly that area, uh, CSR practice adoption, and we did a big imp- qualitative empirical study in the banking industry around the equator principle standard at the time. And I was sitting down at that time in 2010 with uh, our co-author, Dirk Martignone, just for a coffee. Uh, he and I, we got to know each other a few weeks earlier. And he was asking me, yeah, what kind of research are you doing, Dennis? I told him about the paper I did with Patrick and another author, co-author Christopher Wickert. And uh, he, Dirk is doing completely different research. Yeah, he's doing, he, he does formal modeling, computer-based simulation, et cetera. And he said, "It's really interesting what you're doing. We, we could actually model this in the following way, having actors move from one period to the next between the states of non-adoption, ceremonial adoption, and substantive adoption, because this is ultimately what you're after here." Right. And I, and he was <laughs> sketching this on a napkin in the coffee in the coffee shop where we were, and uh, and I was really enthused by the idea. And Dirk and I were going across the street to meet Patrick in the office and told him as well, and he got excited too. So. We, at that point in time, we thought, OK, we should really do this very unusual blend here because we were coming more from the qualitative corner of right. uh, research here uh, in the area of CSR and institutional theory. And he was coming with the quants and formal modeling and, and uh, simulation. But we thought, OK, why not? Why not bridge these, these worlds to some degree? And so we entered that idea and we got very enthused. And um, yeah, tested then these ideas in various workshops. We presented at Stanford and various other uh, Yeah, with Jim March when he used to be around and had his legendary Munch seminar at Stanford and got the encouragement through this seminar and others that this could be an idea that is worth pursuing. But as you can tell from the nine years roller coaster of a, yes, of a journey, yes. it took us quite a bit until it got published. And it, of course, also d- developed quite a bit in between the, the paper. Yeah,
1: Right. So what what made that combination of um, uh, mathematical modeling and uh, and uh, CSR theory interesting enough for you to want to devote time to do this project? Because obviously, yeah. as you said, it's it's taken a lot of time and effort out of it. Uh, so so you know, what was it that was interesting enough to motivate you to put in the effort and time?
0: Yeah, maybe I can start, and Patrick can add to it. I think one. Uh, one uh, issue we struggled with before uh, meeting Dirk and before entering this formal modeling idea was that in our empirical research on the banking industry and the adop- adoption of CSR in the field was uh, that we were doing interview-based studies and uh, we analyzed uh, press releases, documents, etc. about CSR adoption and we, because we wanted to study the, the adoption of, of uh, CSR in a field or industry. But And we want to look at the, at the breadth uh, of, of CSR adoption in the industry. But by studying the breadth, we were, had difficulties to study the depth at the same time, because we could only, in terms of time uh, and resource et cetera, we could only speak with a limited number of organizations and couldn't study them in depth either. Yeah, Naturally, But with yes. this formal modeling, we were able to model dynamics that combine uh, the level of, um, of implementation within firms to the level of dynamics and the field level. So kind of the field level and the organizational level. And with this contribute to theory development in that area, how we were not able to to study the dynamics. Yeah. Uh, It would need a a multi-site ethnography, I would say, to study this empirically uh, to really capture it on the field level and the organizational depth level at the same time. So in that sense, it gave us an instrument to at least foster theory development in an area where we uh, where it's informed through, through some qualitative research, but we couldn't, couldn't fully study it in
1: that way yet. Yeah. Right. So that made it very attractive for us. Yeah. Patrick, how about you? Is it the same motivations?
2: I think Dennis uh, summarized it very uh, well. Uh, I mean, it, it is indeed almost impossible to study uh, the degree of implementation um, in, in, in many organizations uh, at, at the industry level, Right um there are there are some rough proxies uh, and um, people are doing it more and more and this is great work but um we felt like okay um the model approach the modeling formal modeling approach can really add something to uh the csr literature and what what we like and what i like uh, about the paper is that we we integrate uh, in a sense different uh, epistemologies right different ways of generating knowledge so we We, um, when we ground the assumptions or when we motivate our formal modeling assumptions, we actually draw on a a large set of uh, case studies and qualitative work. Right. Right. so this, this model is grounded in previous qualitative research and it highlights our paper highlights in my view that a good quantitative or good simulation formal modeling work always relies on good qualitative work, right? So in a sense, um, the dichotomy we, we often see in, in discourses between quant and qual uh, in a sense is probably overstretched. Um, for, for interesting uh, research, uh, I believe it requires both, and I think here in the paper we were able, I hope at least, we were able to create an interesting
1: uh, integration that's great um, so what um, okay so you mentioned a little bit about presenting the ideas of various workshops and getting feedback on it so so tell us a little bit about how did the project develop from that original idea on the napkin at the uh, at the coffee shop to the initial manuscript that you submitted what what was the process that led from you know that that by which the idea developed? How did the idea change? How did it get formed? How did feedback influence it uh, through that process? And by the time you submitted the manuscript,
2: I, I can start, and uh, then uh, Dennis uh, may want to add. So as Dennis mentioned, it, it was a roller coaster. Uh, we we started with a draft, and we presented it at conferences. And then we submitted the paper to an empirical a journal, I won't say the name, it's a top journal in our field, uh, a journal open to formal modeling approaches. And uh, well, we got rejected mm-hmm. in the first round. And uh, the comments were constructive, they were helpful. Uh, we then moved to a second journal, again, a top journal in our field. Again, we were rejected and uh, we, we were like, oh God, uh, what is wrong? And we, we felt like maybe uh, that there is a challenge here, given that we have this rather very, very unusual blend between uh, formal modeling, CSR research and institutional theory. Right. Uh, but then uh, at some point we, we got an award, an uh, Academy Award for the paper, and we felt like, okay, the paper, uh, at, at least. It Somebody seems, values it, right? Uh, at least uh, it, it attracts interest. And uh, we still believed in the paper. And then, uh, and you made this better than us. Uh, there was a policy change uh, in AMR with uh, um, the editorship of Jay Barney, and AMR was open to uh, formal modeling pieces. Mm-hmm. And we we figured, well, this is my this is maybe a chance. So we submitted to AMR, and um, there we got very developmental and helpful feedback, and um, eventually we were able to publish an AMR. So maybe uh, also as an advice for junior scholars, because back then we were pretty junior, um, never give up. Uh, I think it's important to stay motivated. And naturally, this is easier in a team. Uh, mm-hmm. Be resilient, be persistent. Uh, if, it not, if, if it's not working out in one journal, there might be another journal uh, where the fit uh, uh, is better. Um, and that was the case for us with uh,
1: AMR. Right. I, and I can imagine that uh, if you've got a, a set of reviewers who come at this from different disciplinary or methodological perspectives, that they could try to be pulling you in opposite directions. Uh, I had a friend uh, who once uh, said, you know, when two dogs fight over a bone, the bone loses. Uh, and was that your experience with those first two journals that you had, uh, you had uh, reviewers pulling you in opposite directions in some sense? Yes, a little bit, but
0: also I think at the time our paper was not, maybe also not fully ready at that stage. And so we got tough feedback, uh, but importantly, we, we learned from each of these rounds and we took these feedbacks, even if you got rejected, of course, fully to heart before moving on to the next one. Right. And this proved uh, very valuable. So I think some of the insights and the robustness checks and the analysis that we added that came over time as, as additional layers. Onto the paper through these various review processes. So, yeah, we, we took it always as a constructive learning experience, even if, of course, it's frustrating to get rejected. But we, we sure. as Patrick said, we, we always believed in the idea because we the three of us uh, are very excited about the insights that we generated in this project. And we, yeah, there were hard times in the process, but yes. things like the award at the Academy of Management, SIM divisions, Issues management, also appreciation that we got at conferences. Get us uh, helped us to to get this um, trust in our ideas and then to pursue it further and we are very happy about the outcome now in the in the review process that was very appreciative at EMA and helped us a lot. To, great yeah even bring it to, to publication in the end
1: great so so basically you wound up having to add additional layers of robustness checks and and additional parameters perhaps or uh, to the model that uh, would, would lead you to um, uh, in, in response to the, to, the, to the feedback that you got.
0: Yeah, exactly. And that's also maybe a learning for junior scholars. I mean, in, I don't know, in between our paper at AMR, had, I, I think, 45 pages of 55, 60 uh, in between because we had to add so much appendices and, and, and extra analysis to, to, in our dialogue with the editor, handling editor, and the reviewers. Uh, of course, I mean, I, I sometimes junior scholars saying to me, yeah but there's the the page limit etc i mean of course there's a page limit uh, towards publication of the of the piece right. but in between i think uh, my experience is that reviewers and editors tolerate some pages more uh, in uh, but but then having more depth and actually uh, a lot of the analysis also we, we we added in the response letter actually yeah indirect in responses to specific points that the reviewers raised and i think this all this helped us um, yeah Sharpen our arguments and also make make our findings more robust. And there were additional important layers of analysis, for example, social influence between actors, things like this, that came on board later that made the made the paper stronger.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think you know that's a good lesson for for junior researchers who are maybe just getting started with formal modeling is that even the simplest model, <laughs> yeah. you know, reviewers can 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 try can can ask questions that may force you to make it complex uh more complex than it needs to be uh but they they ask legitimate questions and uh that deserve good answers and so you know sometimes you need to uh to uh, deepen or broaden the model to uh to be able to answer those questions uh even if it's not central to your point uh even and even if it's just uh you know a, a whole lot of effort that goes into you know, half a page onto, on a uh, review or response document that's never actually seized like day. Good. So, um, so let me ask you this. Uh, what, what impact do you hope that this paper will have in terms of its future influence on, on, on future theory, its influence on future empirical research, its influence on future practice, or its influence on future policy? Maybe take each of those four theory, uh, empirics, practice, and policy. What, what kinds of, of, uh, uh, of impact do you hope you'll have, this paper will have on those areas?
2: Okay, I can start with theory and uh, empirics maybe. Um, well, I, I think uh, the paper shows that um, transparency uh, can be beneficial to CSR, uh, but not always. Um, it it depends, right? I mean, in this paper, we really look at the boundary conditions. We look at when is it beneficial? And uh, uh, my hope is that our paper can uh, contribute to um, a better understanding under which conditions transparency is helpful for promoting CSR. And in a sense, it it challenges the transparency uh, imperative, right? Uh, I I mentioned a few minutes ago, the the largely taken for granted assumption that transparency uh, in any condition is helpful or beneficial for CSR. Um, So that that would be the theory part uh, for empirics. Well, I think our paper is one of the first uh, in in the CSR literature actually working with uh, simulation and formal modeling. Um, And here, I guess our hope would be um, that it helps encouraging other scholars to to draw on a more diverse set of of methods and approaches. Because you could argue, we can only see um, a certain set of methods being applied in in CSR research. Um, And this is great and very important, but I think uh, we we see that there is potential to broaden up uh, the methodological toolkit, right? And we believe now that CSR research is more and more maturing Uh, So this has been around for 20, 30 years. We probably uh, um, eventually at least need to move uh, or add at least um, besides the case studies and the great qualitative work, we we probably also need to push a little bit more the quantitative um, side here, uh, including formal uh, modeling and simulation. I think there's a huge opportunity for for scholars actually to to uh, use uh, those approaches more frequently, especially in CSR research. And yeah, for I mean, the, so do, sorry.
1: Sorry, do do you think there's there's um, an opportunity here for for researchers to do more empirical studies on uh, on transparency pressures, uh, increases in transparency pressures over time, uh, and the reasons for those, either either for uh, research on NGOs or policymakers or even competitors. Yeah, probably also on
2: timing. So what is the right uh, point in time to to switch or to to kind of uh, make an evaluation regime more transparent? Because we we kind of uh, do not address directly the question of timing um, in the paper. And I think uh, the timing aspects, that would be an important uh, potentially fruitful avenue for future research.
1: Okay. How about uh, practice or policy? uh are there any uh implications you hope this paper will have on on the actual practice of uh you know of uh, uh of csr or of uh policymakers or of uh, ngos or whoever uh or, or or policies what do you think
0: yeah i think this brings us back a bit to the discussion we had at the very beginning of this conversation uh, regarding the and switch that um, NGOs or regulators um, may be better off if they grant uh, corporations first some leeway, some opacity regarding the uh, experimenting with CSR practices, and then at some point in the process increase the demands. Because as Patrick said, uh, at some point, it's better to um, have a process where many firms come on board and enter in these dialogue processes to then move towards substantive product, uh, adoption, eventually, even if they started uh, more in a ceremonial adoption style, or uh, or haven't haven't achieved their own uh, CSR aspirations yet at that stage, yeah? instead of uh, implementing a, a, a very hard, strict CSR regime or transparency regime, where only very few. Uh, corporations would come on board and, uh, and enter that process. I think this is not only an implication for the for NGOs or activists or regulators, but also maybe for CSR managers. Uh, or yeah, some, some research uh, calls, calls those managers internal activists <laughs> that want to push uh, and sell these, uh, these issues also internally in, in firms. Because I, I think they can, uh, yeah, in, in their negotiations with NGOs and and, and regulators, they can, um, yeah, um, uh, appeal to to an understanding that these processes take time, that CSR is usually an organizational learning process, and that in the beginning of the process, to not kill it off too early, it is important to, to cut them some slack here and to... Uh, to give them some leeway for action in the beginning, and not have too too high opacity demands uh, to uh, sorry transparency demands to begin with, so that these learning processes and sense making processes actually can take place in the firms, and that the, these issues and voices can enter the conversations in the
1: firm as well over time. Right. I, I imagine it could also go the opposite way, <laughs> uh, that uh, that firms who are more aware of the uh, of the 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 possibility of a a transparency shift uh, of a bait and switch uh, mm-hmm. may therefore avoid getting baited in the first place and uh, and you know may may resist may resist adopting even ceremonially in order to avoid being uh, you know being switched later who knows yeah, uh, but So that, that's at least a risk to, to consider. It's
0: a risk, yeah. And um, I, I see uh, this is a bit beyond our paper now, but uh, I, I see two trends at the same time in the area of CSR. There's on the one hand, um, yeah, a lot of bold aspirational talk by firms uh, regarding their CSR and sustainability ambitions uh, that can be seen as decoupled at the moment or greenwashed because they are not achieving those ambitions yet, but they projected right. to be happening in 2030 or uh, 2050 or whatever. Uh, <laughs> so in that sense, they, they are so adopting at some point this after ceremony the ceremony adoption.
1: CEO retires. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, exactly. But uh, our assumption is that, and this is also in line with uh, some research beyond our paper, that these aspirations that are voiced um, Create uh, some pressure that the firms uh, can be held accountable for these promises at some point. So many of these firms enter a pathway towards learning right. and towards substantive CSR limitation. But I see also the opposite trend, as Patrick described it, as you which just described it, that firms become overly cautious yeah, to enter the whole debates on CSR in the first place. And there's good research on the notions of strategic silence or green uh, yes. hushing yeah, that you rather stay silent about uh, what you are doing in terms of CSR sustainability because you don't want to raise the expectation level as mm. too, too high. Yeah, don't that's, a, that's an that? excellent
1: point, right? So that that could be that could be influenced by this uh, by this paper. Yes, absolutely. So let me ask you this: Is do you think that there is an audience for this paper beyond uh, audiences who are interested in CSR beyond CSR researchers? Um, if so, what do, you, what do you think might be the, if, you know, so if I'm just, a, if I'm a management researcher who really is not that into CSR or, or doesn't, doesn't particularly care about it, is there some reason why I would be interested in the paper?
2: I think, uh, or at least I hope this paper could be of interest for um, institutional theory uh, because in institutional theory, um, one uh, concept that is very important is decoupling right? Mm, decoupling right. in policy and practice basically means um, what what is said uh, in terms of uh, let's say uh, in, in a website uh, is not uh, really um, reflected in what is being done. So right. the formal structure um, uh, does not uh, it's not reflected of the reflective of the actual working practice within the organization. And decoupling, uh, what we show uh, is that decoupling, however, uh, can be very helpful for institutional change because decoupling allows companies uh, to ceremonially adopt uh, and to join uh, a CSR practice. And then uh, over time, because of various dynamics and also because of the switch, Uh, those ceremonial uh, decoupled uh, adopters turn eventually, some of them at least, into substantive adopters. And we would um, equate substantive adoption with a practice that is firmly embedded and implemented in a sense institutionalized Mm -hmm. uh, such such that that practice is uh, seen as an enduring and taken for granted part of the organization. So in a sense, uh, our paper shows decoupling uh, has a, a very, um, it, 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 there is a connection between decoupling and institutionalization. And I think this, uh, this link uh, has not been um, elaborated yet uh, sufficiently uh, at least in, in depth. And uh, here I hope, or we hope uh, that could be of interest to, to institutional theory. Um, so that would be one audience uh, besides uh, the CSR scholars where we believe right. our paper could be, could be of interest.
1: Right. I, I, that's a great answer. And that's kind of what I was expecting you to say, because I think, you know, in some sense you may have undersold the paper because by, by making it, you know, so focused on CSR, because it's not just CSR practices that your model could capture, right? It's basically any kind of the institutionalization of any kind of practices. I mean, you've got um, in, when you look at the the mathematics of the model itself, it's, comparing, you know, adoption, I'm sorry, non-adoption, ceremonial adoption and substantive adoption and not none of that is particular to csr It could be a you know non-adoption, ceremonial adoption or substantive adoption of any practice. Um, and so, you know, i wonder if that if the model has has maybe broader applications yeah. you, uh, than you've right. given it credit for. and and you're right that was one of the key uh, questions we discussed during
2: the review process. Because at various points, uh, we discussed whether we should make this a general practice adoption paper, right?
1: Right.
2: And using CSR maybe as one uh, out of several illustrations as, as a context uh, um, to, to illustrate the more general uh, argument. Uh, but in the end, we decided to, to stick to the CSR context, uh, probably mainly, not sure if you agree, Dennis, but probably mainly for pragmatic reasons. Uh, because this is a literature where we, um, th- that we are familiar with, right? Where sure. we have some, some expertise. Um, but I agree. I mean, uh, we, I guess uh, you're right. Um, uh, the implications uh, would be f-
1: for practice adoption in general. Right. I think it's, I think it's the implications of this paper are, are possibly substantially broader than the paper would, would, uh, would have us uh, believe in, in its current form. So, uh, you know, I think there's, there's really very potentially very big impact to this paper. Um, so, you know, it's a great paper. I really enjoyed reading it. And, uh, you know, I do think it will have a big impact. Um, and, uh, you know, appreciate uh, you two gentlemen joining me today to discuss it and to give us a little bit of the flavor of, of the paper itself and its logic and uh, the history behind it. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you, you, Rich. Thank you for having us. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Absolutely.